Once upon a time, there was a man living in Nanyang. His name was Song Dingbo. At the time when Dingbo was a young man, he had never met a ghost when he was walking on the night of a day. When the ghost came, Dingbo asked, "Who's it?" The ghost answered, "I'm a ghost." And who art thou? Dingbo lied to him and said, "I'm a ghost too." The ghost asked, "Where art thou going to?" Dingbo answered, "I'm going to the town of One." The ghost said, "I'm going to the town of One too." So they fared together. After they had walked some miles, the ghost said, "Faring on foot is too slow. We may bear each other on our own backs one after the other when faring. Is it good for us to bear each other on our backs one after the other?" Dingbo answered, "That's good." So they started to bear each other on their backs one after the other. At first, the ghost bore Dingbo on his back. The ghost said. I found that thou art too heavy. Maybe thou art not a ghost. Dingboy answered, "I'm a new ghost, so my body is still heavy." Then it's Dingboy's time to bear the ghost. Dingboy found that the ghost had almost no weight. After they had borne each other on their backs one after the other for some time, Dingboy asked, "I'm a new ghost, so I really don't know what a ghost may fear." The ghost answered, "We ghosts only fear spits." When they were faring, they met a stream. Dingbo let the ghost go first, and the ghost didn't make any din. However, when Dingbo went through the stream, he made a lot of dins. So the ghost asked, "Why didst thou make so many dins?" Dingbo answered, "I'm a ghost that only died lately, so I'm not good at going through water. Don't think too much." When they were near the town of Wan. Dingbo put the ghost on his shoulders fastly, holding the ghost tightly, and the ghost shouted loudly, begging Dingbo to put him down. But Dingbo didn't follow his begging. After they reached the town of Wan, Dingbo put the ghost down onto the ground, and the ghost became a sheep, fearing that the sheep, which had been once a ghost, would become something else. Dingbo spit it on the sheep, and then he sold it for one thousand and five hundred gels and left. This is a story called "The Dingbo, the Ghost Seller," written in classical Chinese by Eastern Jing historian Gan Bao. The story is well known to Chinese people, most of whom came across the text in their junior high school years when they were roughly the same age as Gan Bao's protagonist Dingbo, whose bravery and wisdom are as inspiring as they are entertaining to young minds. Thanks for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With us today is Dr. Robert Ford Campany, who's among the first group of scholars to systematically trace, study, and theorize a distinctive narrative genre in early medieval China called Zhiguai or Chinese Strange Writings. Professor Campany is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Chair of Humanities, and he currently teaches history of Chinese religions in late classical and early medieval China at Vanderbilt University. He is the author of several pivotal textbooks in East Asian studies, such as *Strange Writing: Anomaly Accounts in Early Medieval China*, published in 1996, and *A Garden of Marvels: Tales of Wonder from Early Medieval China*, published quite recently in 2015. Among his other important works on the subject, welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. Shall we begin with the context? Could you tell us who wrote these anomaly stories and why they did it? Sure.、Uh, the writers or compilers, and I think actually we are do better to think of them as compilers of these narratives. 
Um, I don't know of any who were that were compiled by women. They were um, learned men, often scholar officials, all of them really, scholar officials of one rank or another. Some of them, a significant subset, were worked in the, the history office, the history bureau of the uh, imperial government. So what that meant is really just that they had access to a lot of old records of various things. And they seem to have sifted through those records to, to sort of call out and compile uh, narratives of the sort that they were interested in compiling. So that's, that's mm-hmm. why we have them. Well, in your first monograph called Strange Writing, Anomaly Accounts in Early Medieval China, you mentioned that these anomalous accounts belong to a less seriously taken umbrella genre called xiaoshuo, which means petty talk or small story, or contents that are deemed less important if they're not poetry, philosophical narratives, or historical prose. And this has been the situation in China up until May the 4th literary movement in the year 1919, which basically changed everything, right? You mentioned in your work that while these authors were keenly aware of the alien contents and nature of their accounts, they nevertheless managed to negotiate with the more serious literary canon of China at the time, and in doing so, really legitimized the status of these texts. And that's why we're able to read and appreciate them today, right? So how did authors and readers of the anomaly accounts negotiate this periphery and otherness with their literary, religious, and ideological center at the time? What kind of discourse did they use to defend the status of their works? Yeah, that's an excellent question. They use a number of strategies. First of all, it's interesting. You can tell from the surviving prefaces to these works that they were keenly aware that there was some disapproval of even making written records of this sort. And so they responded to these anticipated uh, objections and criticisms in a number of interesting ways, one of which was to uh, just point out, you know, hey, there are some stories like this in works that everyone considers uh, you know, quite legitimate and important. Uh-huh. Uh, even though Confucius was famously on the record in the Analects as saying, you know, that uh, guai or odd anomalous phenomena were one of the categories of things that he declined to discuss. Nevertheless, um, you could find, you know, stories of ghosts and ghostly retribution and such things in plenty of old uh, historical accounts. But more interesting, a couple of other were a couple of other strategies. One was to sort of say, well, yeah, we concede, you know, that these writings really aren't terribly important. They're not the most important sort of thing that people should write and read. Nevertheless, we put them forward because they may have tidbits that can be useful uh, mm-hmm. for readers. And the idea there is, you know, you may wonder, useful for what? And I think the answer is always useful for self-cultivation of some sort, moral, intellectual formation. To me, the most interesting and telling justification, which to me goes to the heart of what this genre of text was created to do, was that a number of these compilers pointed to ancient precedents in which the ruler would do a number of things. Number one, 
send out basically court agents. You could think of them really as spies, or you could think of them as sort of a pre-modern precursor to like opinion poll takers. And this, you know, we don't know if early rulers actually did this, but the idea was, the story was that they would send out these people and, or sometimes even the ruler himself would go out incognito and they would sort of go into the markets and listen to what people were talking about on the streets of cities and villages. They would collect um, uh, children's songs and rhymes, you know, poems that they would hear. And they were sort of trying to get the pulse of the nation and the mindset of the people that they were trying to govern so that, for one thing, to sort of watch out for omens and portents. But in a larger sense, just, I think, to know who were these people that they were governing and what were they interested in? So there were music bureaus. So there was, a, again, in theory, in, ancient, in the really ancient government, like of the Zhou era, there had been a music bureau. And one of the functions of that office was to go out among the people and collect folk songs and bring them back into court and record them and sometimes perform them at court for the members of the court, not just the ruler, but everyone there. Um, there's there's this idea of there's an interest in collecting local and regional oddities that are you know noteworthy human nature you know we're interested in things that stand out things that are different from the norm things that are unusual rare striking and so there was keen interest in this things like you know spices edible uh, substances of various kinds minerals gems and jewels and then of course stories too. Then uh, one other ancient bit of legend that I'll mention, and then I'll, <laughs> this is kind of a long answer, but uh, so you the Great, right, was a legendary ruler of, of old times who had gone around and stemmed the Great Flood. China, like other ancient cultures, had, has had a bunch of flood myths, and you was a kind of proto-engineer who went around and sort of fixed this problem by channeling the waters away building dikes and, and dams where necessary. And uh, one of the things he did in his travels around all of the nine provinces was that he observed all of the strange creatures distinctive to each area. And he, I don't know if he had someone draw them or what, but he had, he had pictures of them inscribed on bronze vessels as a kind of, I don't know, a warning or a record for the people um, it's unclear what, you know, what, what the purpose of that would have been, but clearly it had something to do with world ordering. So there's this idea, you know, that the periphery out there is a bit funky. It's a bit strange, but it's also part of the realm. And so you have to get a handle on it. So if you picture people in the center, the ideological center, not necessarily the geographical center, kind of looking out at a strange and challenging world, this genre of texts, I think, in part, was justified as part of the effort to do that. Well, as the name suggests, Zhiguai is a unique Chinese genre, and it is often translated into Chinese strange writings. And I think it is obvious here that the name Zhiguai, which is a combination of two words with each bearing a polysemy, resists an ideal translation. Since guai does not merely convey the meaning of the strange, the anomalous, and the unfathomable, it also means monsters and ghosts, right? Or the things related with those, as in the Chinese guai wu, guai shou, or even yao guai. 
Whereas zhi, as you mentioned in your monograph, means to record or to account, right? So zhi just really means records,、um, or to you know, as a verb, to give an account of something. And so, why were these things written down? Why were these matters ones that some sort of account of was even needed? But we could talk now about what's the point of writing all this stuff down. So in my field, there's a lot of people who had worked on this genre of texts, tended to treat them as as literature. Naturally, I mean, they, obviously they are literature. the The problem with that, though, is this is my own perspective. Of course, the stories are often entertaining. Everyone likes, you know, ghost stories and stories of demons, things that are spooky and strange. I think there's again a kind of inherent human interest in these kinds of. Areas of、uh, narrative and areas of concern, and so if you read, for example, one ghost story, you may say, "Oh, that was that was kind of interesting." You know, it's it's a nice way to pass time. It's a diversion, and I'm sure that、uh, many people in pre-modern China, you know, I always tell my students, you have to picture a world before electric lighting, <laughs> before electronic <laughs> media,、um, right. even books were not easy to access, and once the sun went down. You know what were people going to do? Well, one of the things they did was they told a lot of stories, and we even have mention. And、uh, when we get up to the Tang Dynasty, there's interesting little passages about, say, for example, you picture a scenario where a bunch of strangers are traveling together on a boat down a river somewhere. At night, there would be like a drinking game, and everyone you'd sort of go around the room, and everyone or around the The deck of the boat, I guess, and everyone had to share a story, and、uh, people would sort of vote thumbs up or thumbs down on whether the story was strange enough. And if it wasn't strange enough, you had to take a drink, you know. So, so、um, of course there was、uh, just a lot of social interest in these kinds of narratives. But here's the thing: if you read one of these stories, you may say, "Oh yeah, that was a nice, interesting little story."、Uh-huh. But if, but if you read Every single one of the stories of this genre that have survived into modern times. At one time, I tried to count them, and I got something around four、um, thousand. But that's a really, really rough count. But anyhow, there, there's a lot of them. And you ask yourself, okay, why? Why were there so many? And then, if you actually plot them, you track what the stories are about. I prepared a kind of.、Um, Scholars sometimes call it a motif index. You just make notes about, you know, keep records of like you know plot summaries. Every every ghost story,、um, you put it in a certain category, and then maybe there's two subcategories where I don't know. In one, say the ghost is coming to punish living parties for some perceived wrongdoing, and so that's like a subcategory of ghost stories and. Things like that, and if you sort of map all of that out, what I realized, I think, is that you get a sort of world picture. This was an effort, I think. The reason why some of these compilations were so big is that people were trying to get a fix on the patterns of the actions of normally unseen beings. To, that's one way to put it. To sort of map the the cosmos, to map the universe, and to try to track. You know, so if ghosts are real, well, let's say if ghosts aren't real, then it's odd that there are all these stories circulating of people's encounters with them. If they are real, 
what do they want? What do they do? Um, and so, you, you you know, it's not scientific, of course, but it's a kind of proto-scientific. It's a quest for knowledge, I would say. So people were trying to, uh, I think, track enough cases to demonstrate or, or to explore whether there might be patterns of regularity. This becomes clearest in, there were, there's a sort of sub- group in this genre that were Buddhist uh, so-called miracle tales. And so here you had people who were already, you know, Buddhist devotees of, of one level or another, both monks and laypersons, monks and nuns and laypersons, and they were clearly interested in, there, there were lots of, uh, in Buddhist scriptures, sutras, all kinds of promises of what believers, what practitioners could expect to happen in their lives if they did certain practices. And then you read the compilations of miracle stories, and those stories are clearly bearing out. They're proving the promises made in the scriptures. So it's a kind of evidential project to collect evidence that, yes, what the scriptures say is actually happening now on Chinese soil, maybe happening to people that you know. All of the people mentioned in those accounts are historical individuals. We have, you know, lots of mentions of them in other genres of works, dynastic histories for starters. So I think it was a, to some extent, an attempt to sort of chart the universe. And that's why I used the term cosmography to define what I think this genre was trying to do. All of that said, of course, the stories are still entertaining. My only point is that entertainment is not the only thing we can imagine the compilers of these stories as having been trying to achieve. You're listening to the Global Novel Podcast, which surveys the narratology of world literatures from antiquity to modernity through a critical lens and aims to make academic education in literature accessible to the world. You can now join our communities on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Tumblr. Well, translating otherness doesn't just embody the physical ways in which these texts were taken down, whether they were materials transcribed and collected from folk accounts or geographical research completed by these authors or from some other sources. It can also mean, and this is what you call in your monograph, the sort of advancing of these writings or the rhetorical strategies adopted by their authors so as to legitimize these writings. There are two really enlightening quotes in your first monograph that struck a philosophical chord in me, and I'm sure with many others too, um, that I think are really useful in contemplating the rhetorics of otherness. One of them is from Guo Pu's preface to Shanghai Jin Commentary. Here I quote, What the world calls anomalous, it does not know by virtue of what it is anomalous. What the world calls non-anonymous, it does not know by virtue of what it is non-anomalous. How this is so. Things are not intrinsically anomalous, they wait upon a self, and only then are anomalous. Anomalousness is therefore located in a self, it is not things themselves that are anomalous. End quote. And the other is from Jonathan Z. Smith, quote, Otherness is not a descriptive category. It is a political and linguistic project, a matter of rhetoric and judgment, unquote. 
So, drawn from these two quotes, could you shed some light on the rhetorics or narrative strategies these authors used in advancing their works? I know there is a lot to cover, but perhaps you could just make a summary and offer one or two examples here. So, if you mean narrative strategies, well, so there's the attempts to、uh, legitimate the genre, and we've already talked about what. If you have enjoyed this episode so far and want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com/slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. 